after many long years on the mighty Sabo, the queen was reassigned. And a thousand fares later on her maiden voyage, we This is Arthur Bush. You're listening to Radio Free Flint, and the microphone is turned around. This is uh, Michael J. Thorpe from Flint, Michigan, Arthur Bush from the sun coast of Florida. And it is an honor and a pleasure to have you on the Radio Free Flint. Michael, welcome. Hi, thanks, Art. It's nice to, nice to be with you. This is a, a new thing here. I spent, you know, I was thinking about the other day, like 50 years working on radio and TV since I was a child, obviously. And uh, it's not often that somebody I've stuck a microphone in their faces, turned around and put one in mine. I kind of like it. <laughs> well, it's a little different thing, although you did master the, the art of the long form interview along the way. I think you even had an interview program at one point, didn't you? I did. Well, I, you know, I, when I was working for ABC at, uh, at Channel 12, I, you know, I did the newsmaker program for uh, almost a decade. And of course, I've done a whole bunch of other projects over the years, working with uh, iMichigan Productions. I write, you know, I produce stuff, but often they like to stick me in front of a camera because I'm not afraid of a camera and a microphone. And I can talk forever, as you'll find out. You have a lot of energy because I remember waking up and watching you when they first launched this idea that they'd show news at six, six o'clock in the morning or something. Five o'clock. Five o'clock. Yes. I was going on the air at five o'clock in the morning for years. That's and TV. You have to look good. Radio is one thing, but TV. Well, you know, what's interesting is for many years, radio, you did the drive times, right? The number one time slot in radio is the morning. Number two is drive time going home in the afternoon. Um, And then for TV, it used to be prime time, which would be anywhere from seven or eight till 10 o'clock at night. Well, they discovered that people actually get up early and instead of turning on the radio, they were turning on TV. So it turned into, and if you watch, they're expanding uh, Good Morning America, the Today Show. They're realizing that people are actually tuning in in the morning. So it's kind of a whole new world out there. And that's kind of what happened. So yeah, people got up that time in the morning. It was miserable, but they knew people were watching. And what they were saying was, how can they look like that this time in the morning? I didn't understand how you had so much energy. (laughs) What have you been up to lately? Well, I keep busy, as you can imagine, but I just released my latest book. It's called Michiganians You Should Know, and some you do and don't know why. Um, I've re- that's my sixth book, uh, and they're all about Michigan. So that's that's one of the things that I that I do. I've also still continue to do uh, you know broadcasting. I do a podcast myself. It's called uh, Capital Memories. It's about Flint's Capital Theater. It's it's at capitaltheaterflint.com, and we did about. I think 40 episodes. It's about a 10 minute program. We do a little history about Flint or the theater. And then I talk to somebody about their memories of when they went to the Capitol Theater. How about you, Art? When was the first time you remember going to the Capitol? I, I just remember their popcorn. <laughs> Let me answer that question. Yeah. I remember going there when the UAW at Christmas time would give out Christmas stocking to children. And my mom and dad would take us there. And somehow or another, we ended up with a sack of fruit and candy. And I don't remember even what, if there was any program. There must have been programming. I don't remember. I remember Santa, Santa Claus was there. Like many people, my first time was to go see a movie. It was Mary Poppins. And it was the first time I ever went to see a movie in a movie theater. And my mom took all my brothers and sisters. And what I like to tell the story is I got in there and I was so fascinated with this beautiful, beautiful theater. And I looked up. And if you remember... In the ceiling, there were stars. Yes. The little lights up there that looked like stars. 
And, right. and I remember looking up there and say, mom, look. And she smiled at me. She says, yeah, stars. <laughs> that was kind of my first memory of the Capitol Theater, almost 100 years older. It's almost 100 years old, and it's completely restored with a, like a $30 million restoration. It is more beautiful today than when it was first built. It was built to be a vaudeville house. It was built for silent movies in 1928. So you know what happened in 1929? Yeah, crash. The jazz singer. So, so all of a sudden they build a vaudeville house and a, and a silent movie theater. And in 1929, the silent movies are almost dead because the jazz singer is released. And vaudeville is a dying ember right then. It was, it was uh, old the day it opened. It's a it's a fascinating story. So anyway, I I looked at that story about the guy that built it, and uh, that's just one of the things that we did. One, uh, uh, the Yancho family story, uh, which won an Emmy. I got an Emmy uh, for that. And we talked to a, he was a veteran of World War II, and he was he built uh, a cemetery in Belgium for the American cemetery. And then he came home and he started a construction company here in Michigan and Flint and, and grew up in, in Goodrich. And we didn't get a chance to talk to him. He passed just before we were going to shoot the show. But we talked to his family about, about what he remembered. So I'm a storyteller from way back. Art. That's, that's kind of what I do and continue to. Well, how did you get into writing books and why? I spent my whole life since I was 17, 18 years old working on radio or TV. And you read names, and you, you hear these stories and, and I think, is that true? Is that true? Can that be true? And I, so I started looking these things up. And my, the latest book called Michiganians You Should Know, I, it started specifically when I was sitting at the anchor desk next to Karen Gatlin. You know, I, I got to work with classy people, Karen, Norma Hall, uh, and I'm sitting there and we're reading about the sentencing of Kwame Kilpatrick at uh, the Frank Murphy Hall of Justice. And I remember... The, the camera's off me and it goes to Karen and I lean back in the chair and thinking, who the hell is Frank Murphy and why is he always associated with these lowlifes? And I didn't mean that necessarily to attack him, but you know, every time you read a story about the Hall, Hall of Justice down in Detroit, it's about crooks. It's about people who are getting sentenced for horrible crimes. I didn't know who he was. I bet most people did. Do you know who he was? Yeah, of course. We studied him in college. He was the governor of Michigan, and he was perhaps the man most single-handedly responsible for not seeing the UAW wiped out during the sit-down strike. He called in the National Guard to my neighborhood to stand between, of all things, the Flint Police, the Black Legion, General Motors Goon Squad. He forced them to negotiate. That's exactly correct. Basically, that's the beginning of the UAW. But wait, there's so much more with this guy. You got let me, let me let me do it really quick for you because this, when I started looking at him, I realized he's from Harbor Beach, you know, in the Thumb of Michigan, which one of my books is called Michigan's Thumb Drive, and I'd already written a little bit about him up there. He went on to Detroit, mayor of Detroit. Uh, he was a prosecutor. Uh, he was a defense attorney. Became a governor of Michigan, but he was also the last governor general of the Philippines. Uh, he had to be uh, taken out of there because of the Japanese attack. The first uh, was William Howard Taft. That gives you an idea of just the level that he was. Then uh, FDR calls him to become the Attorney General of the United States. Frank Murphy was the Attorney General. And then he becomes an Associate Justice of the United States Supreme. And we don't know, you know, and I sat there at the anchor desk, a college degree in history, and I didn't know who Frank Murphy was, which is where the book came from. Let me let me read this. I got this from my little uh, bookmark here. It says, you can live in Marquette, Michigan, drive a Cadillac you bought on Woodward Avenue, float down the Cass River and long for the good old days at Michigan and Trumbull and not know who Marquette, Cadillac, Woodward, Cass, Trumbull are. 
but you can if you read my book. They're all fascinating. Fascinating. Another one, Michigan and Trumbull. Maybe Michigan's yeah. Michigan's the most corner. famous. Yeah, the corner. The Baseball's corner. corner for over a hundred years where Tiger Stadium was. Of course, we know, you know, where Michigan came from, but who is Trumbull? Why did Trumbull get that get that name there? It took me a long time to find out. It's a fascinating story. Trumbull, uh, actually, when it was when it's first named uh, Trumbull, it was at a haymarket. Tire Stadium at that time was just a corner where they had a haymarket selling hay for horses. He was from Connecticut. He went to Yale University. He was he got in when he was 13 years old. John Trumbull is his name. His first cousin was an artist named John Trumbull who did all the Revolutionary War uh, paintings you've heard of. Well, John Trumbull, the cousin, uh, ended up being an attorney, and he was called uh, one of the group called the Connecticut Wits, and he was a longtime uh, jurist in Connecticut. This is, uh, you know, John Trumbull. Uh, so how, how does he get, he gets married and he has uh, children. His daughter marries a guy named William Woodfield, who becomes the mayor of Detroit and was able to give his father-in-law this wonderful gift of naming a street. <laughs> Woodfield later became the second governor of, of Michigan. So it, it's one of those it's one of those strange little stories that nobody would ever know unless you start really looking. Now, Michael, I first met you way back in uh, the 19, early 80s at the radio station. That would be WTRX at the time, I suspect. That's correct. A station that throughout the history of this podcast has weaved its way in and out of the podcast in one way or another. You were at that time, I can't remember if you were doing talk or you were just playing music. <laughs> well, I, I worked there two different times. I played music the first time exclusively. It was just a disc jockey. But then the second time there, I, I did for a while. And then one day, Johnny Burke and Larry Gatz said, starting next week, you're going to do a talk show. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> what? And, and literally, that's how it started. I, 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 okay. And, and this was back when radio talk shows were fairly new. It was, right. it was, you know, I, I say fairly new. They've been around for decades in some ways, but not on a local level. And so, I went in there, that, I'll never forget, went in that day and think, what in God's name I'm talking about? Three hours. And I did it and I got off the air and and uh, I, I was like, and Johnny said, hey, come on, let's, I need to talk about this. And I said, John, you're just going to have to wait. I need to sit down for a few minutes and think about this. But that's how it started. Uh, well, back in those days, they had a guy named John Smith. Yes. And well, John actually, Smith, John came after me, but yes, he was there. I was there at the same time. He was your replacement. And then there was a time, and I can't remember if you were involved in this frolic, but there was a show called Desperate and Dateless. Somehow they got this idea that they'd have a date night show on WTRX. Do you remember that? Oh, I did. I hosted it a couple of times. It was, you know, remember when you work, uh, you know, I was in at eight o'clock in the morning. So those were all at seven o'clock at night and later on day. Yes, we did. Uh, it, and it was a new idea. And and uh, it was actually pretty popular for a long time. We did, uh, you know, gay, desperate and dateless nights. And this is 25 years ago. And that wasn't something we did every week. It was just once in a while. Obviously, we we're in show business. So we were trying to make Headlines. And, and you had a co-star there. Who was your co-star? I don't think John Smith did De Desperate and Dateless. I could be no, wrong. No, I, I well, it'll be kind of funny thinking about him doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody I interviewed called him. Oh, I know who it was. Don Don Juan uh, from WTZZ. Don Wiggins. He calls him Mr. Goodbar. Yes, that's right. That, that was his nickname was Mr. Goodbar. But anyway, they had his co-star. 
named Wicked Wanda. Oh, yeah. Who was a client of mine and a good friend. And she did, she did this, the stand-up. I can't remember. It was oh, you know, Steve Clausen uh, hosted it uh, on occasion. Usually Perry, Perry uh, Wright. Perry, Perry Wright did. And you're talking about Sharon Cowell, who was also yes. uh, our staff, uh, the entire station's secretary. She worked there full time. Uh, she, was hilarious. A, she was hilarious. She was hilarious. She would say anything. That was part of the fun of, of radio. You know, people I've asked me before, you know, what, what, what's the best job you ever had? And I think to a person, all of us that worked at WTRX in the 80s would say that was it. We had a ball. We, we, we were part of the community and we got to do everything and we got to go everywhere and we got to do what we wanted. We, it, it, was a, it was a great place to work. I worked with, you know, with Perry, uh, Johnny Burke, uh, Ricky Archambo. There were uh, bunches of people there that and we all we, we all say the same thing. That was that was the best time. Well, they had a legal talk show called uh, Ask the Lawyer. Yes. Way back, way back in the day. And when I first started practicing law with Ken Siegel, former judge, now deceased, he he liked the idea of doing the show, but he didn't like the idea of having to go there. <laughs> so he he would send me. And after a while. I started liking it. It was fun. And then I right, helped you with your job, didn't it? It helped me because I had just started my law practice. So now people from all over knew me. Right. And, and of course, uh, people sticking questions in a microphone in your face and asking you questions, you have to dance quickly, uh, especially as an attorney trying to get clients. So yeah, it, it, it gave you great practice. It, it, it gave you training in the art of the soundbite. <laughs> yes. An important, an important uh, training. All right, let's go back to your book. So if we want to buy one of these books, how do we buy one of these books? Well, the easiest and quickest way is uh, michaeljthorpe.com. That, uh, they're right there. I did, you know, the other ones are uh, the, the trivia books. I've got a, the, the Great Great Lakes Trivia Test and then the even greater Great Lakes Trivia Test. Now, let, me, let me ask you a trivia question here, just, just to give you an idea of the kind of questions here. Michigan is a land of peninsulas. Uh, you know, a peninsula is just a bit of land surrounded by water on three sides. How many peninsulas are there in Michigan? Are there A, 2, B, 5, or C, at least 7? Seven? 7. At least. There are more than 7, actually. So you start counting them down. Let me run them through. Upper and lower, obviously. The Thumb is a peninsula. The Garden Peninsula. The Leelanau Peninsula. The Mission Peninsula. The Keelanau Peninsula. There's just a, a, a few of them uh, right there. So let yeah. me see if I got, oh, there's one you might like. You were a county commissioner for, for some amount of time, right? Three terms and, to be exact. Well, here, okay. There seems to be a license for everything. You need a license to drive a car, to fly a plane, to teach school, and to be a doctor, a pharmacist, a builder. Which of the following occupations needs a license? A, a butter grater, B, a minnow dealer, or C, a garbage feeder? A minnow dealer. Believe it or not, in the state of Michigan, you needed a license to sell minnows, to grate butter, and to be a garbage feeder. You had to have licenses at one time for all of those. By the way, a garbage feeder is somebody who feeds pigs, the garbage oh, of a community. You know, in the olden days, that's what they used to do. They have pigs out of the hog farm, and, and, and they take the garbage in the city, and they would take it out, and the hogs would eat it, and then they would sell the hogs, and that's how they made money. Okay, you know, so Michael... You've written books about trivia. You've written books about Michigan history. And what else did you write book about? Oh, but Michigan's Thumb. Michigan's Thumb Drive is there. And I did one also. Uh, it's called the, the Legend of the Abominable Huckleberry. Or 
the practically true story of how the Huckleberry Railroad got its name. And, 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 and it's, a, it's a children's story, obviously, with a little bit of history in it about Pere Marquette Railroad, which is what the Huckleberry Railroad was. The Huckleberry Railroad at Crossroads Village in Flint was actually an actual factual railroad that ran up into the thumb of Michigan to bring lumber down to Governor Crapo's uh, lumber mills, which was right on the Flint River at the site of the old IMA Auditorium, which is now the, the White the white building uh, downtown. Pretty pretty yeah. wild, huh? For sure. Now, next time you write a book about the Genesee Bell, give me a ring up. I have a lot of history on that. I'll mention somebody, you know, there was a, <laughs> I, one of my favorite stories is about uh, my friend, Neil Woodward. I did a radio show, a live radio uh, variety show, uh, like a Prairie Home Companion. And Neil was part of it. And he wrote a song about the sinking of the Genesee Bell. And those of us who are old enough remember that it actually did sink. There was a flaw in the design and it actually did sink. Uh, not the current boat, but the, for the first one. But they won't let him sing it out there. <laughs> well, let me let me correct you on one thing. There was no flaw design in the uh, Genesee Bell, huh? but there was a use design. There was a failure of vision about what this, this boat was capable of because it was formally the Asabo River Queen. And the Genesee Bell, which was purchased while I was on the County Board of Commission, or on the County Parks Commission, which I served for a number of years. The director, Jim Bassett at the time, came to me and said, well, we can buy this boat. And we think it would really be a nice asset for Mott Lake. So he came along. You know, they had what they called, uh, I don't know, they call it a special name when they inspect the boat, a boat survey inspection. But in any event, it all checked out. Once the boat got out on Mott Lake on its maiden voyage, it it sinks. Well, the reason it sunk was because it was put on a lake and, and on the river. They don't have the kind of waves and wind action oh. with the water that overcame the transom in the back of the boat, which made it go kerplunk. That's the story of the sinking of the Genesee Bell. Yeah, that's a great fun song that Neil, Neil did about it. <laughs> So. All right, let's come back to the Capitol Theater. One of obviously, it's your passion at this moment. Tell us uh, who it was that that built this building. A guy named uh, Eberson, E B E R S O N, and uh, he was a guy. He was from, uh, from Belgium, and he was a, a designer. He designed over two hundred of these theaters. They, they were made to look like you were at a particular place. So you might like like a Roman villa which is actually what uh, the, the uh, Capitol Theater was made to look like, or, or other places. And, and uh, he built these things all over. And he did that. He was a fascinating businessman. He um, came up with all these great designs, which were pretty intricate. But then he started mass producing them in more of a, a plaster, as opposed to the kind of stuff that you have to put up on a wall. So they'd send the pieces to all these different theaters and they'd stick them up on the wall. So it cost them less. The other thing he did, which was I found fascinating, was he had... He created his own colors, his own color design, which, by the way, he owned. And he was the only one that could make these colors. So he'd make the grand curtains, the upholstery and the carpeting, the colors that he made so that when they had to replace them, guess who they had to go to? They had yeah. to go back to Mr. Eberson and his, his wife and daughter, who actually ran that part of the business. It really is a fascinating. Do they have regular programs there at the Capitol Theater? Yes, them? yes, yes, they do. Every Friday, unless they do a concert or something, they, they run a movie, uh, and which the, the show, the, the Capitol Memories, is uh, like, the old, uh, like the old cartoons. I'm a cartoon now. They roll it through uh, before the movies. So, yeah, they do a lot of concerts. They're still doing a lot of stuff. Now, Mike, 
Are you from Flint? I was born and raised in Flint, went to Civic Park in Emerson, and then we moved out to Davison where I graduated from high school. I live in Flint now, once again. So does that make you a Flintstone? I would think so. What's a Flintstone? Flintstone is somebody from Flint, grew up here and has that kind of Flint flavor to them. You know, the Coney dogs and and, uh, buying your Buicks. Now you're a Flint booster. Yes. A Flint and a Michigan booster, of course. I remember, like you, when you could literally go downtown and sit in the middle of Saginaw Street and not worry about it because there was nothing there. All the buildings were boarded up. People were not there. They did everything they could to avoid there because there was no there there. There was nothing to do. Well, if you go down there now, I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's really cooking. I know people uh, talk about, well, we need to get to the neighborhoods. I'm, I'm one that thinks you start at the core and you build out. And they are, you know, they've done a wonderful job. There are restaurants to go to downtown. There are stores. It's not quite like it was when, when I was little and went downtown with my mom and my grandma. But there's, there's a there there. And I'm excited about it. I, it is kind of scary, some of the political issues that we have going on. I served 18 years uh, as a school board member. And you don't get anything done unless what you can school board? In Goodrich. I was, I was president of the board for many years. You got to work together. You worked uh, as a county commissioner, completely different than a school board. Nevertheless, you have to have some kind of agreement. You have to find a way to come together and work together. I think we forgot about that. People are now screaming about their point of view, whether they can get there or not. Your point of view isn't as important as what you can get done. That's important. That's exactly right. At the County Board of Commissioners, we called it the game of five. Yes. Yeah. And we always got the four pretty quickly. But after that, we had to get to the game of five. It's the other person we picked off. That compromise isn't always so good. It's what the whole mind. country is built on. That's yeah, how it was founded. That was the point. You work with some interesting people over the years, both in television world and radio world. T- tell us a little, uh, some storytelling about some of these characters. Well, you know, I, I grew up growing up in Flint and my mom grew up in Flint. So, you know, I knew, um, I'd heard of Ed Berryman, you know, who was on the radio in the 50s and the 60s, one of the first anchors in television news here in Flint. Um, I, and I knew Dan Hutter uh, over at WFDF for many, many years. Their morning guy, the the voice of Flint, uh, and also the voice of the Detroit Lions at Tiger Stadium. If you if you you knew that, um, Bill Lamb, who my mom used to say, you know, when she was in high school, he did dances that she went to. Sleepyhead Ted Johnson. Oh, uh, what a legend! You know, and with Ed, uh, I worked with him at WKMF at WTRX. He was just a jovial, good guy, always in front of people. He 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 could be Santa Claus. He was a fine actor. Just. Salt of the earth, a good, good guy. I was going to tell a quick story about Dan Hunter. Dan Hunter, I never got to work with him. He worked at FDF. I was at TRX when he retired. It was a big day in Flint. He'd been there forever, right? I mean, this was this was the voice of Flint. And I called him one day. I said, hey, Dan, you know, after, your, uh, after you retire, want to come over and talk about radio on, on, my, on my show? And he said, sure. When do you want me to come? I said, well, when do you want to come? He said, well, I'll be off the air at 10. I could be there by 11. And on the day he retired, he came over and did my show. <laughs> wow. Well, let me give you a couple, a, a little word contest here. One, one, two words, maybe a sentence. Less root. He was one of the original Jones boys at uh, WTRX, which was a classic radio format. What they did was they had names of shows. So if you were doing the morning show, your name was John Paul Jones. And if you were doing the midday show, you were Dow Jones. 
in, in the afternoon drive was Davy Jones. And he was one of the original Jones boys. He realized the Jones being a Jones boys wasn't going to last forever. He became a newsman and was one of the, he was really the last uh, among the last of the Flint radio newsmen uh, and a member of the Michigan uh, Broadcasters Hall of Fame. A, a good guy. I got to work with him when I did work at WFDF uh, some years later. I called him the Dean of Michigan News. One day we went and I worked at Genesee Towers. We were up towards the top of the building and the studios there uh, before it fell to the ground. I walked in there, we got in and all the power went out. It's like, we're way up there and all the, we're at a radio station. You can't do anything without power. So I remember there was one emergency light in a corner hallway. And so Les and I were sitting there on the floor in the hallway. He was kind of making some notes of things he might talk about when he got the news to talk about the, what, the power outage. I was sitting there thinking, trying not to fall asleep because it was, you know, six, six o'clock in the morning. Uh, anyway, I, that's my story about Les. Did you know Peter C. Kavanaugh? I never got to work with him, but I knew Pete uh, for, for, for many years. Yes. One of the most amazing radio people you ever want to meet. He was one of the greatest idea men. He created some formats in some ways. Uh, first, he was at WTAC for many years. And if you ever talk to Pete, he would, you know, they, the emergency message center is all clear. He used to use that amazing voice. And if you grew up in Flint, you remember hearing that. And it was a bit they did on the radio for the emergency. They, they didn't really do much with it, right? There's never really any emergency messages, but it was it sounded like there was. But he then he went over and created what they called at the time the bird of a different feather, uh, CK105 at the time, and, and created a new style of album-oriented rock uh, and went on to go off the air, which I think was a sad thing for him, but he wanted to make some money became a radio executive and uh, was in just passed here in this last year. He was, he was just uh, fascinating. And he was also one of the, one of the creators along with Don Sherwood of. of oh yes. Sherwood Forest. Sherwood Forest, which I call Michigan's Woodstock back in the day. Every, uh, every weekend. Yes. All right. A little closer to home. Listeners might not know these people, but maybe you can say why they were so important in your career and your life. Tom Bryson. Tom Bryson. Tom, he's a fascinating character. I, I, you know, I, I love the man. He, he hired me at uh, Channel 12. And I'd done TV before, but I had never been a television news anchor. And I remember he called me in. And when, you hire, when you're hiring an anchor, one of the main anchors for the station, I didn't know this at the time, but I was a radio guy. He brought me in and he had a big table and everybody was around the table. And it was all the people I later would work with. You know, there was like six, seven people there. And he was introducing me and he said, well, I, and I had a mustache at the time and my hair was darker. I had hair, thankfully, I still do, but I had a mustache. And it, he went and he said, uh, Mike, we just wanted to talk to you for a few minutes and uh, uh, talk about what you might want to do. And he said, we decided you just can't have a mustache. Oh, I'm thinking, now nah, I got to shave my mustache. And he said, but as we re continue to think about it, we thought maybe we would try this. He said, we, we decided maybe we'd, we'd make you have your hair and your mustache red and we call you Red Thorpe on the air. And I wanted this job and I'm sitting here thinking, I wasn't quite, and of course, everybody in the room's doing this, trying not, try not to laugh. And I, I didn't know what to do. Thorpe, he's going to paint my hair and my mustache red. And then he started laughing. Tom Bryson, good guy. There's another story about him. Did you know? And, and it's kind of a sad story. You know, he was a broadcaster for many, many years. He wasn't always an executive. He was a wire puller. Uh, he would, haul, you know, back in the olden days, in order to do a television setup, you had to haul these huge cables for power and for, because you had to have a direct wire. We didn't have cell, right? At the, uh, the funeral 
for John F. He was across the street from John John, John Kennedy Jr. As he was pulling the cords and stuff to the camera across there. And he was there on that shooting that whole event. Uh, it, it's it's kind of a fascinating story. Good, okay. good guy. Hold him in high Okay, regard. Tom Bryson, the general manager of Channel 12 for many years through many corporate iterations. Yes, they kept, they, they, they'd sell the station, but they keep Tom. Okay, another name that the audience doesn't know, but who is one of the most important people in the last probably 30 years, Flint News and Radio and Television, is Mookie Wilson. <laughs> Mookie Wilson. Uh, yeah, yeah, like Kevin. Uh, but we, we, we all we always called him Mookie because he's a baseball fan, and Mookie Wilson is a Hall of Fame baseball player. He's one of those kind of guys He's just nice guy. He can talk to anybody. People like talking to him. So he, he would sit at the desk. At, at Channel 12 as a, a lead producer. And he's the guy that you call with a tip, a news tip, or wanting to uh, tell a story. And he would decide whether he would assign a reporter to them or not. Uh, but he became one of the, and the, the whole state, one of the people where he's the one that could get you on. And he was just, he, and he still is. He's, I hate to sound like he's a past tense. Kevin's doing just fine. <laughs> you got that right. If you want to be on television, you need to know Mookie. Yes, and, and, and he wanted to know you too. That's what it felt like. Uh, Jim Kurtzner. Oh, Kurtzner. Worked with him a couple of times over the years, you know, at, uh, at 12. Um, and at five, I was uh, actually the voice of TV5 for several years, uh, a long time ago. He's not afraid to do anything. Jim will stick a camera or a microphone literally anywhere and not be held back. I, there are things that I, I won't do or I can't do. I, I should say it that way. I can't do. I can't bring my... Jim can do it. He's a great reporter. His on-air presence is going to be missed in Detroit after his retirement. He used to have a saying, it's the beast needs to be fed, which meant that every day there had to be some kind of news that was going to get shown because they don't just allow television news to show blanks. I work with uh, school board members around the state about dealing with the media. And I remind them, you know, if you've got a newspaper and I've got a newspaper that's got 20 pages and it might have a few ads in it, but the important, but, but I have to fill those 20 pages. And if you do something wrong on a day when I don't have a lot of news, you're going to get in there. And if you do something wrong that on a day when I have a lot of news, you might it might be passed by. You know, it, it's it's a yes. You got to feed the beast. Okay, so that's Kurtzner. Now another infamous man who's still got it all going is the infamous Johnny Burke. Ah, one of my best friends. Good, one, I, one I, of a kind. He's one of a kind. Uh, a great broadcaster, and I worked with him for many years at TRX, and he hired me. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the story of. I haven't told the story very many times, but the truth is I worked down the street at WKMF and uh, uh, we called him Sluggo, uh, Jim. Oh my God, I can't say it. My, the, the general manager at the time, I, I, I've known him for, you know, some months and we used to meet with a bunch of people and, and party. Well, he asked Johnny as a personal favor, to interview me for this job that they had opening in middays. Well, Johnny being Johnny, yeah, he didn't want to do what anybody told him to. It's still true. <laughs> he, so, but he said, "All right, all right, I will." So uh, he called me in, and we got to talking, and and uh, he said, "All right, well, thanks." And then he called me back. He said, "Well, let's meet." And we met at a place I didn't didn't know about it called the Treasure Chest. Uh oh, it is what you think. It was there on Dort Highway, and I wasn't truly aware. I walked in there with Johnny, and we're, we're sitting down at this table, and of course, we're, we're we're talking business. He's offering me this job and talking money and all that. And I'm looking all over the place. That's how I got the job was a job offer at the treasure chest. And I've worked with him off and on ever since. And <laughs> he's, what amazes me about him as he's grown older, he's become Mr. Franken. Yeah. 
Well, the other and, thing uh, is about about Johnny, and and he, he can be rather acerbic, and and, it, and people can be a little af- afraid of him, I think. But Johnny is truly a caring, caring guy. He cares, and he works hard to help people. And under all that gruff BS that's that's there sometimes, he really is just a good. Didn't he one time sit on top of a semi truck in the parking lot of Genesee Valley Center oh, and try to yeah, get? Yeah, you know, it's part of that radio bay. Well, one time he played this curly shuffle for two days. Uh, I don't know if you remember when we were at WTRX. He started playing the curly shuffle and and claiming that he locked himself into the into the studio and. He, he did that on top of the truck. Yeah. I, you know, I, with my friend, uh, Dale Myers, I, we, we did a, when I was the first time I was at WTRX, we did a marathon where we went on the air Monday morning at 9 a.m. to see how long we could last. And we went out, we were on the air for what was it? 101 hours and 12 minutes or something like that. We, we went off the air on Friday. So, you know, you do, you do a lot of it. So we did it from what was called the small mall. You know, that's a Dort Mall uh, down on Dort Highway. We, we literally, the two of us were on the air all week long. Downstairs, they had this beauty salon and some of these uh, women came up and they said, you guys look tired. You know, if we did your hair, you'd feel better. So, you know, and they, they washed our hair and, and, and combed it all up. And so we looked good, even if we were miserable feeling. It was, I got to tell you what, you never want to stay up for a hundred hours. It, it really, it really can hurt you. Now you were a newsman for a long time. Radio and television. Yeah. What do you think the five biggest stories were during your career? 9-11, Kwame uh, uh, Kilpatrick. Now, that's a hard, hard question. I hadn't, I, I, I had, you know, I've got to think about it. All those years, all that time. What about, come the, to me what about the closing of Buick City? Well, yeah, that, you know what? The whole closing almost of Flint at that time, it wasn't so much just Buick. It was everything. AC, Buick, uh, the, the Chevy. It wasn't just one. It was GM withdrawing. Yes, that that was that was huge. Having been, growing up in Flint and seeing it when I was a little kid, you know, and, and seeing what happened to it. You know, it looks like I don't know the last time you went down Hamilton Avenue, but if you drive down there, it, it I always think it must look like what the Hamilton farm looked 110 years ago, 120 years ago. That's they they, they bought Mr. Hamilton's farm. And that's where they started building the, the world's largest uh, automotive manufacturing facility. It's, it's well, As far as I look at that place, it has, as one of my podcast guests described, a ghostly look to it. Yes, it, it does. It's kind of dusty. And of course, you know, it's poison or terrible. Yeah. One of the big stories for Michael J. Thorpe in my realm was that one day Michael Thorpe got called to jury duty. Who expected that? <laughs> well... Happens to all of us. I got called several times myself. Yeah, well, you weren't the morning anchor at, at uh, ABC 12 and, and uh, actually in the number one news show and been there for seven years. Yeah, you know, I get this call. I had never actually gotten called for jury duty before, but I... All right, let's, let's put this in a time and place. Um, well, I'm... It, it, well, what? Genesee County? I don't know what you mean by time and place. What year was that? Well, what year was it? Yeah, I don't know. Hell if I know, I don't remember. Well, it was the Sheree L. Miller case is what it ended up being, uh, which was that uh, the, the internet murder case. It was 20 and, years ago. So it was yeah, like it was, 2002 yes. or something well, like that. Uh, would that be, uh, yeah, uh, oh, 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 09, maybe. Anyway, I go in there. No, not oh, 09, oh, 03. Oh, three. Oh, well, you make me feel older. Okay, thank no, you. No, that's when the murder happened. And it yes, was so it was somewhere in that era. Anyway, I, I go in there and all these people, and it, of course, when, you know, when, you, when you're on TV every day, you're very familiar. You know, that, that I, 
I, you can't help that. And, and I'm used to that. I, I've dealt with it with just fine. I don't have a problem with people saying hi. Um, but it was kind of weird. I'm in this room with all these people who are staring at me doing a story, that kind of thing. And I remember there was like three people all day long. I'm in there and there are three people left. This is what I remember. And there were a couple uh, older ladies and me, and we go into the courtroom and I'm sitting uh, there uh where was I? I was in the court talking to Judge Fullerton. And uh, she said, uh, Mr. Thorpe, do you know anybody in this courtroom? I looked around because, you know, I'm a Flint kid. I do know a lot of people. And it was a, a kind of a strange thing. I said, only you, Your Honor. Uh, you were, she was literally the only one, the per, only person that I knew in that courtroom. Okay. Uh, and they kept on asking me other questions. Uh, you know, obviously, what do they call that? Point there? They're, they're Point trying there, to yeah. That's yeah. right. So uh, they picked me. I read the book, Art. I read the book, Paul, Banju- uh, Paul uh, Janzuski's book, uh, Fatal Error. I know you've read it too. And uh, I know that uh, in the book, Mar- uh, you told Marcy Mabry, who is your, one of your prosecutors, that I was too nice a guy. Is that true? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did tell him that. And then I also told her that because of your position, and public profile that the jury may be intimidated by the fact that you're sitting there. I can see that. And any of us who have had any modicum of public exposure for many decades, like you and I both have had, uh, there is a certain factor that comes with that. So what we like to get on juries are people that uh, just blend in like the wallpaper (laughs) and they become one. We don't want anybody you know, peddling their thing. Now, the other thing was that I didn't know Michael J. Tharp to be part of the right-wing intelligentsia of <laughs> Michigan journalism. And so be, being a prosecutor, my local knowledge is Marcy. I don't know that Marcy even knew you. No. At that it, time, my, here's my only concern. Did I think Michael J. Thorpe could, could be fair and impartial? Absolutely, without any doubt in my mind. Do I think Michael J. Thorpe would get in that room as he does and begin to lead conversations? Absolutely. <laughs> and I told her when she came back and said, he's on the jury. I said, he will be the Thorper. Oh, that didn't, wow. the, that didn't get in the <laughs> So that's how that went. That's my side. But look, this is my interview of you. Dude. But, but, you know, here's here's a thing. Now, I thought I, I was the jury foreman. Uh, for the Shereel Miller murder trial. And I, I, I understand why you'd say that, but I always thought it was because one day we were shown this video, which we were told in a sort of way that was pornographic, sort of. But what it was, was th- they brought this ca- a television in front of us and we see Sheree in this nightgown, night whatever it was she had. And she walks over and she gets on a bed and then it goes black. And all we hear is a music uh, in the background. And after we got done, you know, we're, we're saying, what the hell was that? And, and uh, I started to ask, there's a young man at the time who was leading us around. I don't know what they call that guy. Um, he was a clerk. Okay. The well, he was clerk. leading us around. And I said, I, 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 I said, well, I've got a question. And he said, well, I can't answer any questions. I said, well, I'm going to ask you anyway. I said, we just saw something we were told was pornographic. I didn't see anything that was pornographic. I didn't see anything. Are we supposed to accept that this was pornographic. And he looked at me and he said, I'll ask. <laughs> and, and, I, and that was the moment that I figured that they decided that because, you know, I was afraid I didn't do anything wrong. I, I thought it was a fair and reasonable question. 
And, and it was obviously because they came back and started talking a little bit more about, not that I wanted to see the video, but what was the point, I guess, at that time? Yeah. Now you got on the jury and the case was presented by some very capable lawyers, uh, Marcy Mayer- Mayberry, who was uh, Marcy Mann, uh, who is a very competent trial attorney. Mm-hmm. And she was selected for a lot of reasons, which she gets along with the judge. And <laughs> David Nicola. David Nicola. A young, aggressive defense attorney. He was a fierce. Uh, I've said before, if I were going to, if I want, if I'm in trouble, he's the kind of defense attorney I want because he jumped on everything just as hard as he could. So you listen to this. How was it like to sit there not asking me? That's a long time. That trial went on for several days. It, 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 it was kind of weird for me. You know, I mean, that's what I do for a living. I, I ask questions in there. And, and you know, as, as I just explained the story, I, I did when I had to ask a question did. It was odd. I, I learned a lot. I, I learned a lot, you know, about being on a jury. I think the most important thing I learned was how difficult it is to get 12 people to agree on anything, literally anything from, from lunch to guilt. It, you know, and, and we were in there, all these different personalities, you know, we had nothing in common. We were brought from all parts of the community and we're walking it through. And you're, you're right. I did kind of, well, I was a foreman, but I was kind of leading the discussion. Where do you start? You walk in there, there really aren't any instructions, right? For a jury, you, you walk in there, go ahead, decide if they're guilty or innocent. First thing you do is pick a foreman. Jeez. <laughs> so we, we start talking it, uh, it through. And in this particular case, we had this outline, almost like a novel, a book of all of the um, internet messages that went back and forth between Jerry Cassidy and Sheree L. Miller, back and forth and back and forth. And so we kept on going back and forth. The first thing I noticed was that African-American men didn't believe anything the police said, period. They, they doubted everything. We got out of there. The women pretty much thought she was guilty as sin. I was pretty convinced. I couldn't think of any reason. I kept on saying, why would she do these things? Well, yeah, I, I, don't, I didn't, I never, it didn't make any sense all the way through. Uh, so we, kept, we got down to us one uh, gentleman. It was polite, good guy, was always nice to everybody, but he was not going to budge. It was 11 to 1. And this was, this was several days in, right? Uh, we, we, we've been there for hours. So that last night, I remember, I said, okay, when we come in here tomorrow, we're going to spend the first hour reading the novel. And, and then after that, we're going to make, we'll decide what we're going to do. You know, we, we'll have to make a, a choice. So we read it one more time. Everybody started talking about the different questions that they had. And, and, and I looked over at this one guy and I said, I can vote. Do you want to do something? He said, I'm not voting for first degree. All right. Let's vote on second degree murder. <laughs> and that's what we did. First degree um, uh, conspiracy was, was another charge. God, I can't believe I remember this stuff. And he voted for that. I'm not sure that he realized that conspiracy in the first degree is basically the same thing as murder in, in some ways in, in how you get treated by the court. Nevertheless, that's how it happened. And all of us, to a person, when we went back into the courtroom to read and confirm our, our vote, we were all holding our breath when, when he spoke up because we weren't sure he would stick with it, <laughs> but he did. But when the story was all said and done, what was your impression of the jury system itself? The way the jury works, the, the concept of it? What did you come away with? To your well, I already said version? one thing, how difficult it is to get anyone to agree on one thing. It's an ancient system, I guess, where, where you're supposed to convince 12 disparate people of, of somebody's guilt. 
And sometimes it's easier than others. Uh, did, did you see any wisdom come from that conversation collectively? Which? The collective decision was wise. Yeah, in some ways, yes. You know, she probably, I don't know. You know, the thing is, I, I, she was guilty of first degree murder, premeditated. She did it. I believe that with all my heart and soul. And she actually later admitted it. So was, but first degree, second degree, I, I guess. I didn't, you know, I didn't learn anything, I guess, in, in that particular way, except for how difficult it is to get people to agree on things. And I guess maybe the other thing is how different people and different groups of people look at the same issue. That may be the thing that as a prosecutor, you had to deal with as well, a lot, because you know, my background is completely different than some of these uh, African-American uh, men that were on that court. I may have gone to school with them, you know, all the way through, but it's still different. I look different. So, Michael, tell me something positive that you plan on doing in the future here. What are you up to from here forward? Well, I, I, obviously, I'm still going to tell my stories. I, I love telling stories about Michigan. I like to travel, and and uh, and I have a lot of great stories, as as you can imagine, about people in Michigan. Uh, so I'll be I'll continue to do that. I have uh, you know two beautiful little granddaughters, and I love being a grandpa. And so I I deal with them. I got lots of nieces and nephews. And, that's kind of what I'm doing, and I'm still going to continue, obviously, to do. I'm, I'm doing some uh, some production work with uh, I Michigan Productions. And what a joy to see you again! And if you want to get that book, and if um, you want to buy it, you go to MichaelJThorpe.com. Thank you for joining me, Mike. Thanks, Art. It's good to talk to you. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. The music on outro is the Troubadour of Michigan, as as voted by the Michigan Legislature, Neil Woodward. The song. The singing of the Tennessee Bell. Take care. Bye-bye. Crying, they're trying to swim for the door. Then the Carney's Millers say the Sawyer's managers and blacksmiths got all hands safely back to the shore. Now the waters are rippling, rumors are flying, but reason shall prevail. Have on some mixing and some old sea shanty, next time the bell sends sail. All of the citizens and dead.